welcome to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway podcast, WHRA. My name is Julie. My name is Connor. And just as a recap, we are grad students at UNL. I study soil microbial ecology. I study how we can integrate ecological principles into our legal framework. Yeah. Shall we uh, dive into today's topic? Let's do it. It's a biggie. Yeah, but it builds nicely off previous topics. For sure. Okay, so just as a roadmap for this episode, we're going to go through panarchy. Panarchy theory is a really foundational, uh, or maybe not foundational, but important mm-hmm. uh, concept in resilience literature. And uh, so we're going to just briefly talk through the concept's introduction. Julie's going to be handling that today. I will present to you all a paper, a foundational paper from resilience theory. And then Julie will tackle a more modern paper. And finally, we will finish up with some resilience in the news. Yeah, where we saw resilience this week. All right, so diving right in with the concept introduction. As a preface, most of this information came right from the online module that Connor and I and our colleagues developed with the Council for Resilience Education here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And this module in particular uh, Connor did the bulk of the work on. He's the first author of this module. So if panarchy interests you, head online to, you know, UNL Plant Soil Science eLibrary, click on panarchy and uh, read Connor's work, which is what I'm more or less about to do <laughs> for you listeners. So <laughs> panarchy is essentially the same as the adaptive cycle. So if you haven't listened to our adaptive cycle episode, head on back, do that, or read our online module about it. But, uh, Instead of just being one adaptive cycle, it is multiple adaptive cycles sort of nested in a hierarchy, which I'll explain in a second. But that's all it is. It's an expansion of the adaptive cycle theory to account for space, time, different scales. And so a brief recap of the adaptive cycle. The adaptive cycle illustrates how systems can, after collapse, reorganize into a system that will either, you know, be similar or different in its structure and process. Basically just every system sort of goes through these phases of growth and conservation and collapse and reorganization. Just more of an acknowledgement of the variability and inherent sort of cycles of change that occur in every system, be that a forest, um, you know, human government structure, earth, whatever. So that's a bit of a recap. And so panarchy is just an expansion of this theory to include scale, I think is the best way to think about it. We've previously discussed how an adaptive cycle describes a system at a certain scale. So it makes sense that, you know, an ecosystem or either an earth would have many of these adaptive cycles and that they might be interconnected and influence one another. A set of nested adaptive cycles can be organized into a hierarchy, which connects adaptive cycles at small scales to adaptive cycles at large scales. And while hierarchy is generally used to describe a system in which power, influence, or authority originate at the top and travel down to the bottom, in panarchy theory, hierarchy is more broadly defined as like the overall structure of the scales where systems operate. Um, This doesn't mean that scales travel only one way, like from, you know, top to bottom or from bottom to top, but instead, you know, influence can travel in either direction Uh, similar to sort of self-organized smaller scales can affect larger scales. So it's not just like uh, influence, you know, I don't know, uh, disturbances at the level of earth or the continent are the only thing that influence little scales, like what's going on at a, 
forest, small forest, but things that happen in small forests in the adaptive cycle of that small system also affect things that happen at the continent scale. So it goes both ways. So one example of this is an adaptive cycle that describes the cyclical nature of a forest that goes through periods of growth, prolonged stability, collapse, maybe through fire, and reorganization. And then it is linked to the cycles above and below the forest scale in space. So this can include smaller patches of forest. So maybe we're talking about a forest that's like hundreds of miles wide. That's like the one that we were talking about in the beginning. But there are sort of smaller patches of forest that might within that that might differ in one way or another. Um, and then the surrounding landscape outside of this hundreds of miles of forest that might include grasslands or even human habitations might be the adaptive cycle above our sort of core forest in scale that we're talking about. So again, when talking about adaptive cycles, you kind of define the system that you're talking about. Um, and sure. so you define these, you know, there's sort of unlimited ways to discuss systems and nest them in your mind. This is a conceptual framework. Just as you mentioned that, I was thinking of the... Uh, the Troika dolls, the, I usually think of them as coming from Russia. I'm not mm -hmm. actually sure where they're from, but the little Russian Troika dolls where you have the, the small ones that are nested into right. the big ones and you pull them out and you, you have a whole range of sizes. That's what I think of when I think of something like the nested set of adaptive cycles or the, the way they're nested into each other is yeah. the, the little ones fit into the larger ones, but each size will will influence the other when it comes to adaptive cycles. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great way to sort of visually think about this. It's it's just co combining our, you know, our episode on scale and combining our episode on adaptive cycles. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the second example that I have here that's less ecological in nature is um, that federal governments also illustrate panarchy theory. And they do so through, you know, for example, a country with a federal system, the national government does not hold all the power, but instead shares it with the regional and or local governments. So as a result, small scale local governments, such as counties and cities, might make decisions which aggregate to influence national and nationwide policy. I don't know, in the US, you know, the, you know, Congress and president makes decisions and laws and that influences obviously small scale, everyone basically. Right, but right. the decisions of individual states obviously holds weight that can influence, you know, vote, you know, presidential voting decisions and anything like that. It absolutely goes both ways. Um, the large scale national government also, you know, makes decisions. So in the middle might be a regional scale, such as states and provinces, you know, between sort of that top federal and, you know, maybe smaller counties and whose decisions travel down to affect the local scales and up to affect the national ones. So again, define size and scale how you will. It just as a framework to discuss these things. And so yeah, this sort of provides us with another opportunity to talk about what I mentioned in brief earlier, that sort of bottom up and top down influence. Um, and I think the federal government, and here I probably more specifically mean the US government, because that's obviously what I'm most familiar with only having lived in the US. Um, so the federal government example is a pretty easy way to conceptualize its bottom up and top down influence. You can We can also discuss how um, we can describe these adaptive cycle scales in terms of how fast or slow they go through the adaptive cycle and change. So in federal systems, the sort of smaller local governments, what we would consider fast and small, they sort of go through, might go through the adaptive cycle. That's sort of, you know, reorganization, growth, collapse, reorganization, that whole thing uh, happens perhaps a bit quicker, or at least it can, uh, mm. than with the sort of big mechanism of you know, the large federal government that might take many years to 
go through a you know fundamental reorganization or something like that. Um, yeah. So in federal systems, the fast and small governments at the local scale can exert pressure at the regional or even national scale if the changing needs of their citizens demand it. Similarly, policies set at the national scale will influence decisions at the regional and local scale, and regional policies will influence decisions also at the local scale and also, you know, up. So this is, again, that bottom-up and top-down control, um, but with the added component of sometimes the lower scales, the smaller, quicker, faster scales might go through these cycles of adaptive, uh, the adaptive cycle faster, make fundamental changes faster, be more susceptible to individual action, or, you know, they are not, I don't know how to describe it. The big federal government has a lot of long-term mechanisms in place that might prevent quick reorganization and quick changes and that sort of thing. However, the fast changes that might occur at the lower scales do move up in scale and can potentially influence what state the adaptive cycle of the big federal government is in. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as we have just mentioned, panarchy is a series of nested adaptive cycles. National, regional, and local governments conform to these cyclical patterns in many ways, including through their elections. Government systems may also collapse. Um, proceed, that's the omega phase, that sort of release or collapse, uh, due to a variety of perturbations, including protests and other forms of civil unrest. Uh, depending on what scale that these perturbations occur, bottom-up or top-down ripple effects may occur. In this way, small forms of civil unrest at the scale of the local government may have the potential to influence the stability of a national government, even if we think of that national government as very stable or in a big, slow adaptive cycle. So this is one example application of panarchy theory in real life that we can definitely see, um, and that influences everything from national policies on conservation and ecology, uh, or trade, all the way to influences like coup d'etats and how we think about sort of fundamental reorganization of mm. a government system. So, right. yeah, interesting. But small individual, you know, it's a, that thing we've mentioned, I think, in the adaptive cycle episode, that little tiny changes can lead to big rippling effects. And this yeah, is just absolutely. another way to uh, really conceptualize how maybe a small local protest movement might really go on to fundamentally reorganize an entire government through a ripple effect that might affect the local government, then the state government, then the federal government, you know, what have you. Uh, it would be interesting. I haven't read much on, on sort of, you know, political organization, but it would be interesting to see how something like social media might disrupt the time scale that some of these movements operate on since, you know, communication has become faster and faster. So something to think yeah, about. For sure. Yeah. And so the That's last, yeah. And so the last thing I'll mention here, uh, in terms of sort of terminology, is revolt and remember are two sort of core ideas in panarchy. So panarchies aren't static, um, but they change as system processes and structures at different scales. And panarchy move to the adaptive cycle. We've covered this, and this change can come about in two ways. So this is again another form of that top-down and bottom-up discussion that we've been having. So revolt is when one scale, you know, one adaptive cycle at one spatial or temporal scale enters the omega, which is what we call that release or collapse phase and collapses. So something, you know, in that forest example, a big fire rips through and now it's not really a forest anymore at the moment. So in essence, the system components can no longer interact with each other the way they did before because of this big perturbation. And the collapse causes the larger, slower scale or scales above it to experience a crisis. So maybe there was a big fire that ripped through one forest patch 
And now that has fundamentally provided some sort of problem for the grassland next door. Maybe because certain animals use that forest and then influence the grassland in some way. But now the grassland also, or the big grassland that surrounds the whole forest now has a bigger problem because of a collapse in the adaptive cycle of the forest patch that we're discussing. Um, and so an example of revolt in the other example we've been using is a social revolution where groups of individuals organizing at smaller scales overwhelm and change a large scale. What we're talking about, a small protest movement could fundamentally change a federal government. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is just a maybe a more natural or normal word for that sort of bottom up and top down influence. You know, a, a big change at a small scale is a revolt that can change the bigger panarchy scale that it's a part of. A bigger, sorry, adaptive cycle that it's a part of. Right. Um, yeah. And so the second term in our revolt and remember terminology is remember. So the second pathway, as you can probably guess, is when a system undergoes a collapse and the larger and slower scales that are above it influence how the system reorganizes. So the higher scale, the adaptive cycle that's bigger, you know, of a larger spatial temporal scale than the adaptive cycle we're currently focused on, retains institutional memory of the previous structures and processes, and the lower scale uses that memory to create a similar system to what existed at the same scale in the past. So on in our forest example, say, you know, you've got a patch of forest, um, you know, that's one adaptive cycle sort of scale, and it burns pretty thoroughly and has sort of gone through this collapse phase. But there's, you know, at the scale above, adapt cycle above, whatever, there is a bigger forest around or nearby or whatever. And that bigger scale provides seeds that can be transported, you know, maybe by birds or by animals or what have you to this, you know, forest that has recently burned and sort of reseeds this forest. So it will become a very similar forest and structure and function to the one that was there previously. That is the institutional memory of, in this case, the ecosystem that allows for the adaptive cycle to go through, you know, a collapse of the forest ecosystem, but then a reorganization into essentially the same system. Right, right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, those are pretty much the, the core ideas. Adap you know, panarchy is just many adaptive cycles organized over space and time and sort of a hierarchy. Little adaptive cycles can affect big adaptive cycles, big adaptive cycles, big systems can affect little adaptive cycles, little systems, and revolt and remember influence how one adaptive cycle or one scale influences the one above or below it. That's sort of the, yeah. Go learn about adaptive ding, cycles. Ding, yeah, go read about adaptive cycles. Maybe look at one of the uh, pictures on our online module if you want just sort of a Nice representation. Nice, nice yeah. visualization. <laughs> yeah. So what do we have for a foundational paper, Connor? Where did panarchy get its start? Where did panarchy get its start? <laughs> Ooh, what a deep question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the true foundation for panarchy is really outlined in Panarchy, Understanding Transformations in Human and Natural Systems, which is a book edited by Dr. Lance Gunderson and Dr. C.S. Holling. That's a very thick book, and we would be here for hours talking about panarchy mm -hmm. and all of its subchapters and, and related concepts. So um, I, maybe that's uh, something for a special episode to cover in the future, is right. just specifically tackle the panarchy book and talk yeah. about the panarchy book. Book club. Book club. 
But in the meantime, we will talk about Understanding the Complexity of Economic, Ecological, and Social Systems, a paper by C.S. Holling. It's the first paper that was published in an academic journal that describes panarchy, Great. and it takes most of its material from the, uh, the panarchy book and specific, specifically three chapters that Holling wrote for the panarchy book. It's from 2001, which goes to show that panarchy theory in scientific terms is still a pretty new concept. It's yeah. only been around for 25 years or so. Just before the, the panarchy book was published and this paper was published, uh, there was a team of scientists who had been working on the panarchy concept. It took them about you know, five years from start to finish to really get it all together and, and worded they, the way they wanted to. So it hasn't really been around for all that long, but it's made quite a bit of progress, made a bit of a splash too mm -hmm. in the time since then. So the theory was originally developed to help address the problem of complexity in social, ecological, and economic issues, shockingly enough, <laughs> considering the title. Right. And just like I mentioned before, it's the result of the Resilience Project, uh, which was a scientific collaboration on tackling these complexity issues in these um, various disciplines. The term panarchy was created to reflect the theory's goal to I'm going to quote here from Holling, rationalize the interplay between change and persistence, between the predictable and the unpredictable. We therefore melded the image of the Greek god Pan as the epitome of unpredictable change with the notion of hierarchies across scales to invent a new term that could represent structures that sustain experiments, test the results, and allow adaptive evolution. So if you were ever curious where the word panarchy came from, the Greek god Pan. Yeah, and again, it's just another, you know, as with all of resilience, just trying to get well-defined words to describe and work with unpredictable change. That's sort of the core, like, issue of resilience, right? Like, that's trying to describe unpredictability. Yes, and it's so challenging, too, when you're dealing with complex systems. Is the system truly unpredictable mm -hmm. are, are we talking about assumptions of perfect knowledge you know when we when it comes to complexity we can't ever assume having perfect knowledge so how do we mitigate that or, or work around that yeah of course in the paper holling describes panarchy as the hierarchical structure in which natural systems human systems and social ecological systems which are the systems that have components of both are interlinked with each other in unending adaptive cycles. And these occur at discrete scales. This refers back to what you were talking about, Julie, with the, the forest, you have the patch of forest, you have a big forest, you have planet Earth, and at the very small scales, you have pine needles, right? There's something going on at every spatial and temporal scale. So essentially, according to Holling, the idea of panarchy combines the concept of space-time hierarchies with a concept of adaptive cycles, which again goes back to what you were talking about with our introduction to the concept, Julie. Holling describes some of the history of hierarchy as a concept in ecology, and then he differentiates panarchy from these other hierarchy concepts because in a panarchy, control does not just occur from large-scale processes pressing down, but from small-scale processes pushing up. Mm -hmm. This is where that concept of revolt comes from, essentially. He also describes the adaptive cycle, of course, the foundational concept, panarchy theory, 
and provides three important properties in an adaptive cycle. So the first is the inherent potential of a system that is available for change, how much of that system is the available to be transformed. The internal controllability of a system, which means how closely connected the different components of a system are. Are they relatively independent of each other? Are they all very tightly bound, either through distance or energy or the relationships? And finally, the adaptive capacity or the resilience of a system. How vulnerable is the system to shocks? How capable is the system of absorbing change and still maintaining its structure and function? There are some pretty useful figures for adaptive cycles in this paper too. There's a pretty cool one that's labeled figure five in the paper that contains 3D elements of the adaptive cycle, looks like in a system. I won't try to describe it through audio, but by all means, check it out through the link if you are interested. Panarchy theory emphasizes cross-scale links too. These processes occur at one scale and they might affect processes at other scales which in turn infects the dynamics of the entire system. This goes back, Julie, to what you were talking about, about small items having big effects. Think of these small processes having an outside influence. This is the pro proverbial pebble that starts an avalanche. <laughs> yeah. During the reorganization phase of the adaptive cycle, large-scale structures provide a sort of institutional memory that encourages the system which is going through the adaptive cycle to reorganize around the same set of structures. This is that remember concept. This prevents the, the system from flipping to, over to a new set of structures and processes. So again, going back to the forest example, you know, we have the, the patch in the middle of the forest. That patch is going to be influenced by the greater, the larger scale structure of the forest as a whole to revert back to that forest system. However, there are destructive processes which can, at smaller scales, impact larger scales and cause them to reorganize. So this is where that revolt concept comes mm -hmm. into play. If at that small patch of the, there is, uh, for example, an invasive species that causes the trees to wither and die, instead of the, the larger forest coming in and um, reorganizing the system back into a forest state, the invasive species might spread into other patches of forest. And as that occurs, we see the forest itself at a large scale start to decline. Perhaps it turns into a grassland, perhaps it right. turns into a different type of forest. Who knows? Yeah. But this is where that revolt concept comes into play. Howling actually uses the forest after a forest fire example, funnily enough, in his paper. And he also provides a few other examples. For example, he uses an organism-based perspective he talks about bacterial mutation and evolution, species collapse, references the dinosaurs, of course. Fun, grand example of a perturbation and a response. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's the point of a foundational paper if you can't have epic examples? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you make a new field of study, you get to use whatever examples that you want. <laughs> That's right. Holling doesn't restrict himself to just natural systems, though. He also talks about social systems. And he provides social examples. Uh, for example, he talks about the 17th century in Eurasia, periods of calm followed by periods of revolution, and uses that as a, an example of where we see these concepts of revolt and remember on human scales. Halling also uses this paper to describe poverty traps and rigidity traps, 
which isn't something we've talked about too much on this yeah. podcast. Um, and I was actually thinking as uh, we were going through this for the paper, uh, that might be a, a potential good future episode is to Agreed. dive more in depth into poverty traps and rigidity traps. And these are situations where adaptive cycles and a panarchy have become maladaptive. Poverty traps have very low connectedness between the components, so they're, they're relatively independent of each other. There's very low potential and very low resilience, so the system can be easily flipped. For example, in a situation like this might be a situation where uh, a group of nomads are grazing a commons and they're starting to deal with desertification issues. However, they don't really have any alternative economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. So they're really only way to counter the steadily diminishing returns of grazing that land is to graze that land even harder to keep their income up. Right, and that just leads so, to increased desertification and ends up in this sort of spiraling cycle. Correct, it creates yeah. a feedback loop that yeah. eventually causes the whole system to collapse. In contrast, a rigidity trap is a very tightly regulated, wealthy, very resilient system. The system's capable of resisting external pressure and maintaining itself, but it exists in a, a perversely resilient, uh, undesirable state. It doesn't have any capacity for change. It's stuck in the status quo. Hmm. And often that status quo isn't, isn't desirable for, for human needs, for example. But um, it's very difficult to get out of the rigidity trap. So there's quite a lot to explore with poverty traps and rigidity trap concepts. And I think that could be a good future episode, but absolutely. for now, at any rate, we're going to leave it behind. And I just wanted to mention out that uh, Hauling wraps up the paper by considering what makes human systems different than natural systems and comes up with three fairly unique features to human systems. The first one being foresight and intentionality. Effectively, humans can look ahead, make predictions about what is going to happen in these systems mm -hmm. and how their influences will impact that system and change their behavior accordingly. Communication, something that you mentioned actually, Julie, is the power of modern communication. And this bleeds into the third one, which is technology. So humans are capable of communicating with each other about these issues and applying their foresight and capacity for intention to change their behavior. And they can utilize technology to achieve the first two objectives. Right, whether that's, uh, and hopefully with enough, I don't know, research and intelligence to make the right decisions as well. That's the other thing, that's sort of the paradox of being human, right? Is we can be, we can have foresight and intentionality and communication and technology and still make the wrong decision for what's best for us. <laughs> that's absolutely true too. Yeah, that's very cool. That's, and that was very, and you said this was written in 2001? Yes. Well, it was published in 2000. Published, right. Yeah, that's interesting. The communication and technology uh, topics that he brought, brought up there, especially with to see how that has progressed then in the 20 years since this paper is pretty remarkable. That's very true. It would have been mostly dial-up internet in 2001. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Should we head into very the modern cool. paper? Let's do it. What have you got for a modern paper, Julie? So... The modern paper that I chose is from 2020, I think it was published in October, and it is called Panarchy, Opportunities and Challenges for Ecosystem Management. And as a disclosure, many of the authors on this paper are people that we have worked with or taken classes from or 
you know, are on our committees or for our graduate work. We, we know a lot of these authors. So a full disclosure. Very true. Yes. Um, yeah. And it was published in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. Um, and so what I really liked about this paper is that it, you know, I was trying, you know, obviously to look for an application paper of panarchy. But I think when I started looking for this paper, I was like, let's find, you know, one ecosystem where, you know, a land manager or scientist has applied the ideas of panarchy to fix something here or something like that. But when I found this paper, what I thought was so interesting about it was that they sort of took the ideas of panarchy and adaptive management and stuff like this and came at it almost from a science communication perspective, um, you know, in a stakeholder engagement perspective and, and all this sort of stuff. So I'll just, I'll dive into it. But I, I was, I thought this was a really, really neat paper apart from it being written by people that I know. <laughs> so you uh, will then be tearing it apart and aggressively criticizing every yeah. aspect of it, right? Right. I, I better do this justice or else I uh, will have to have a conversation with some of them. So they start basically that natural resource law assumes that, yeah, and the other thing is, Connor, this is definitely your area of expertise. There's a lot of discussion of law and policy and this sort of mm. so jump in whenever if my interpretation is terrible. Um, <laughs> and so natural resource law assumes that ecosystems generally operate within a limited envelope of predictability. These laws often do not adequately account for uncertainty and surprises, and even less so for the emergent phenomenon associated with today's natural disasters, food and water security issues, and the global rates of species extinction. Instead, laws often reinforce command and control approaches to ecosystem management, and corresponding conservation actions are often, you know, they often target simplistic endpoints. So sure. that's a pretty good recap of some ideas that we've talked about in terms of how we manage ecosystems. We have this idea that a forest is a forest is a forest is a forest. It should always be that way. Um, we want to use command and control approaches to keep it a forest, no matter what. No acceptance of variability and unpredictability and change. Right. Yeah. And even to inject the adaptive cycle into this conversation here. Mm -hmm. When these laws were written, uh, when the system was first being organized, command and control was the the paradigm that was yeah. being used. So now we have to go in, now that the system is moved into more of a conservation phase and mm -hmm. it's going to be significantly more challenging to, to flip that system. Yeah. So such efforts, like I just said, often attempt to freeze ecosystems in steady states, keep that forest to forest, even though their dynamic behavior is inevitable and ultimately fundamental to the very structure and function of nature, nature changes, and with the knowledge that we are changing nature faster than ever. Yeah. So when management uh, consider, you know, management strategies are implemented without consideration of scale, adverse management outcomes may ensue. A classic example is that of coral reefs, where management often fails to account for the impacts that nearby terrestrial ecosystems may have on coral reef systems. So we don't always yeah. take into account, yeah, stuff we, we've discussed coral reefs a little bit. Um, but so this paper, it says, so here we present one of the first attempts to implement panarchy at the beginning of a project as part of efforts to address the failure to halt a biome scale transition with major conservation implications in North America. Basically, they're talking about eastern red cedar invasion in the Nebraska Sandhills, which is some, which is a project that Connor and I have both worked on um, and written about and, you know, all that sort of thing. It's woody encroachment into a traditionally grassland ecosystem 
with sort of wide ranging implications for ranching, um, water resource allocation, nutrient cycling, and woody encroachment's a global problem, but this paper specifically focuses on the Nebraska sand hills and the communities there. Uh, so that was another reason why I liked it, obviously, because I know a little bit about this. <laughs> yeah, and so their approach embedded panarchy into practices that encouraged scientists to engage non-science partners and audiences, sort of use science communication to instill panarchy-based management uh, practices in the Nebraska sand hills to cope with woody encroachment. And so to better explain how panarchy can be put into practice, these authors describe how their approach aligns with three basic propositions of panarchy. One, that complex systems are discontinuously structured, organized into discrete groups, basically discrete adaptive cycles and, you know, organized mm -hmm. in a hierarchy like we discussed. Two, right. that complex systems undergo cycles of destruction and renewal, go through the adaptive cycle. And three, that cross-scale linkages, connection of those adaptive cycles over space and time, um, or they give an example of destruction of many small scale wetlands resulting in large scale loss of ecosystem services, you know, small changes that lead to big problems, um, right. are critical <laughs> to system function. So in their example, they describe how panarchy inspired new ways of visualizing and communicating scientific data, the practical approaches used to elucidate the risks of the continued transition of grasslands to woodland dominance in the Nebraska sandhills and sort of determine the risk for areas that have not yet gone through this transition that are still in grasslands, but are at threat of woody encouragement of woodland dominance, um, and initial evidence for policy transformation as a result of these science communication plan, you know, science communication methods that will be described in this paper. And I thought it was just so cool because it focuses so much on how panarchy informed science communication and stakeholder engagement and translational science between multiple stakeholders can achieve sustainable outcomes um, at both like an environmental level and a policy mm -hmm. level that influences ecology. It's an acknowledgement of how important the idea of well-formed resilience concepts like panarchy, knowledge of you know ecology and ecosystem uh, transitions and perturbances, how important landowners and stakeholders are, and uh, how important policy is and laws and yeah. some of those. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and that is cool. Yeah. And so like I said, their case study is Eastern Red Cedar Invasion, Woody Encroachment, Woody Invasion into Grasslands in the Nebraska Sandhills. And they divide uh, their sort of methods, what they've done to use science communication to instill panarchy concepts in the management of these systems into the three propositions uh, of panarchy that I mentioned. So that first proposition, like I said, is complex systems are discontinuously structured. So basically says that mechanical, mechanical and chemical interventions have been largely relied upon for decades as the best practices for mitigating woody plant encroachment into grasslands in an effort to retrogressively manage succession. The succession. <laughs> and basically that means that in grasslands that have been you know, facing the threat of woody encroachment of trees, you know, of grasslands becoming woodlands basically, um, and that, you know, it covers it a bit in here, but that ha has partially occurred because of humans suppressing fire, not allowing, you know, these sort of natural perturbances to occur that keep, you know, trees under control and grasslands, blah, blah, blah. We've mentioned that a bit, but a lot of the ways that people have been managing these woody encroachments in these locations is to mechanically and chemically remove the trees. So use, um, 
some sort of weed killer is the wrong word, but some sort of chemical that kills the trees or cut them down, that sort of thing. And the idea is that that sort of retrogressive uh, management can somehow turn these grasslands that are turning into woodlands back to grasslands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so to deconstruct these, this long-held perspective, we leverage new data and maps to communicate the general problem of assuming vegetation can be managed retrogressively, um, basically that grasslands can easily be restored with mechanical and chemical removal of trees. That's the paradigm a lot of people are operating under. They want to see if they can push back on that a little bit. So they first introduced evidence of extensive eastern cedar invasion at regional conferences and workshops and demonstrating a pattern of invasion of grasslands spanning multiple U.S. states. A key message was to reveal heightened vulnerability to the intact grassland region in Nebraska and to engage the general denial among citizens and resource professionals that maybe this environmental problem, this woody encroachment problem that is happening all over the globe in grasslands wasn't possible in this location for whatever reason. So, yeah, and so tens of millions of, you know, taxpayer dollars are spent each year on woody encroachment management, brush management, whatever you want to call that. Um, Yet even with federal subsidies, the cost of implementing brush management interventions in the southern Great Plains resulted in localized management actions. So, you know, even though people were starting to use these brush management interventions uh, that, you know, maybe had good scientific backing, whatever, the average project size of this implementation was between 15 and 20 hectares. And so relatively small patches. And like we said, small, small interventions, small changes can make big changes. Right. But maybe it's not big enough. And so, sure. yeah. And so they argue that these sort of small localized management actions weren't keeping pace with a relatively rapid and widespread grassland to eastern red cedar woodland conversion. Yeah. So the rev- the revolt of the eastern red cedar spreading was beating out the revolt yes. of the people trying to implement mechanical removal. Yeah, and scale wasn't quite being taken into account enough, which of course makes sense because most people don't own huge sections of land or anything like that. You know what I mean? You can't, you can only influence your own plot of land most of the time. So of course that makes sense, but that's maybe where mm-hmm. policy comes into play and you know some of these bigger changes. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So to understand the limitations of assuming a, you know, continuous distribution of vegetation change, like a steady march forward of the of the of the woodlands and the implications of managing based on these assumptions, we then provide stakeholders with decades of scientific research on the risks of continuing with current policy and the limitations of brush of the brush management paradigm that sort of cutting down trees and chemically removing trees. So given that Nebraska is home to uh, 50,000 square kilometers of the Sandhills Prairie ecosystem, that Sandhills grassland we discussed, which is one of the last remaining intact grasslands in North America, the distribution and dissemination of scientific knowledge became sort of a top priority for this project. You know, and a lot of it's private land, so you can't go in and be, I'm going to get rid of all the trees here. You know, you don't control <laughs> that land. So that's where right. science communication comes into play so much. And so in this first sort of proposition stage of this paper, one thing that they did was they created the Eastern Red Cedar Science Literacy Project. And this is a website, sort of a clearinghouse of um, all, like basically, you can't say all, because there's always more information online, but all of the journal articles that they can find about Eastern Red Cedar invasion, you know, in this location and others. And they sort of summarize a lot of this research 
um, and, you know, gave some outcomes. Like, here's the effect of Eastern Red Cedar woody encroachment on small mammals. Here's the result of Eastern Red Cedar, you know, woody encroachment on water resources in these regions, on ranching, on all these other things. And it just presented a really nice website clearinghouse of this information. Um, and I actually, when I was writing my thesis proposal, used this website extensively. And it is <laughs> really lovely organized and was a great science communication project. And so they say that an interesting outcome emerged while discussing the relevant historical scientific literature with non-academic partners. It became obvious that traditional management practices targeted a narrow range of vegetation hierarchy, removing individual trees and dense woody patches on a fraction of an individual's property was the default target, an approach that disregarded policies and programs necessary for addressing the broader issue of vegetation change. So this is that scale hierarchy, all these things we've been talking about. It says no right. formal no formal policies or planning horizons have been implemented at scales beyond the patch level, the sort of individual you know land level, um, or at the level of seeds or seed dispers dispersal. Maybe somehow trying to figure out how to prevent eastern red cedar uh, encroachment through preventing seed, you know, establishment or movement, um, despite seed movement being the basis for eastern red cedar reproduction spread. So this oversight has now become a focal point of research and proactive management. Basically, even though a lot of people knew about this problem, they were only managing at the patch size because that's what they had control over. But looking through the literature, you know, this group found out that maybe we're, we're only working at the really small scale and we need to start thinking about how these woody plants spread and manage for that. So. Proposition two, then, in this sort of three-proposition structure of the paper, uh, proposition two on panarchy is that complex systems undergo cycles of destruction and renewal. So a second challenge of grassland conservation is the tradition of preventing disturbances perceived to compete with grazing animals. And this disturbance might be fire in this case. We need to manage grasslands, you know, have evolved with fire uh, as sort of a regular perturbance, something very good, something that keeps trees out of grasslands. So if you want to have grasslands, you have to allow for regular fire. And so, right. you know, maybe the first challenge was, you know, challenge of scale, not managing at the right scale. The second challenge is, you know, to sort of change the um, mental model, the paradigm, whatever people's thoughts about preventing disturbance. So these approaches typically focus on a uh, single scale of system behavior which sort of fundamentally contradicts the inherent realities of ecological dynamics. We talk about this all the time. Nature changes. They say the irony is that such an approach facilitates widespread regional encroachment of Easter Red Cedar, as it is a fire-sensitive and historically rare woody plant. So the idea of trying to manage to keep something as it was, you know, in this fear of disturbance, is actually causing the system to change. That's hmm. an interesting irony. So they say restoring fire and reestablishing cycles of quote unquote destruction, but good destruction, good perturbances, and renewal right. in grasslands became a statewide landowner led priority. So one of the co-authors of this paper, uh, Dr. Twidwell, who we work really extensively with in all disclosure, uh, participated in the founding of the Nebraska Prescribed Fire Council, which organized landowners across the state and emphasized core principles of the adaptive cycle while describing the role of fire in maintaining grassland dominance. Key messages from fire ecology research were adopted by private and public partners within the group, countering long-held perceptions of fire as simply a destructive force of nature that would lead to large-scale erosion of the sandhills. Um, in fact, fire was less expensive than other management options, requiring fewer external inputs, 
and created heterogeneity that reinforced grassland biodiversity and productivity. Panarchy was used in outreach materials, educational seminars, and workshops to foster a shift from the prevailing view, which emphasized the forward stage in the adaptive cycle succession and avoided the backward stage, that release and reorganization, to mm. an alternative perspective where all stages of the adaptive cycle were seen as important in grassland conservation. So that's really cool. We've seen, you know, the people in this paper, they've sort of, they know what panarchy is, they know the ecology of the space, but they notice what's missing is just communication and making sort of adoption of these new management paradigms easier. Yeah, it's science communication. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what's so cool about this paper. <laughs> there, you know, this paper is not like finding something new out about ecology or, you know, defining what panarchy is or whatever. It's just saying, yeah, panarchy exists, but if you don't tell anyone about it and make it, you know, easy to apply in these situations, it's not going to get used. Yeah. yeah. Links pretty well to the mission of this podcast and yeah. the Council for Resilience Education. Very cool. So proposition three in this paper structure is that cross-scale linkages are critical to system functions. That cross-scale linkages, the connection between an adaptive cycle at one scale to the adaptive cycle at the scale above it, the sort of fundamental panarchy idea. And so the third major challenge for grassland conservation in the Sandhills is that afforestation programs, afforestation means planting forests, basically, planting trees, afforestation programs in Nebraska have for more than a century exported local knowledge to promote government policies and initiatives that introduce trees into temperate grasslands around the world. The afforestation footprint within North America's temperate grassland biome is exceptional. Basically, especially during the earlier 20th century, uh, some folks in Nebraska thought that planting eastern cedar would be great for a variety of purposes for, you know, windbreaks, which it is very good as, for windbreaks, um, and sure. for a variety of other, you know, purposes. Um, and while some of those ideas might have been well-founded, they had some very unintended consequences now with the destruction of grasslands, um, especially with how important we know that grasslands are now for ecosystem services. Um, and so in Nebraska and elsewhere in the Great Plains, these small-scale plantings of eastern cedar trees set the stage for woody plant encroachment and changed the scale of impact from a landowner problem to a biome-level crisis. They call this the tyranny of trees. Um, but it is such a good <laughs> illustration of panarchy, right? Individual people planted eastern cedar for their own purposes as windbreaks or whatever. Worked great for that. But then over the you know time scale of 100 years, it's become a biome level crisis that threatens sort of the existence of these grasslands. I like the tyranny of trees bit. That's very evocative. <laughs> yeah, they, they seem to be quoting it from a different paper, uh, interestingly. So I wonder who first decided that was the term. I like it. Came up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, these afforestation efforts often ignore the cross-scale linkages inherent in panarchy, particularly the recognition that local interventions can lead to changes at the higher levels of organization and the surrounding grassland matrix. Again, little changes affect everything. It's like when one person accidentally releases an invasive species. I mean, an eastern cedar is sort of a native invasive. That's a whole other conversation. But it is a problem of invasive species, right? One person releases maybe five animals that are terribly invasive don't know that it's invasive it's an accidental introduction and then all of a sudden they take over a country you know what i mean like i'm from right. i'm from the U, the south southern united states where kudzu covers literally everything <laughs> you know and so it's a uh, small small problems <laughs> lead to big problems <laughs> and so this paper the people in the paper they said they helped foster information sharing at public meetings to counter the widespread denial 
that existed in Nebraska concerning the potential for tree planting programs to contribute to woody plant encroachment. A central challenge for collaboration became obvious. Contrasting utilitarian-driven land use ethics existed among different natural resource agencies. For instance, state forest service agencies are legislatively obligated to manage state forest lands, but also to support private forestry efforts. On the other hand, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, various state wildlife agencies, conservation-oriented non-governmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy, and the U.S. Forest Service, which also manages national grasslands, are charged with conserving grasslands by controlling trees that may invade from the surrounding landscape. No explicit decision authority exists to address these con contradictory goals, leading to a classic equilibrium-based approach to conservation where investments are made simultaneously to plant trees for perceived utilitarian benefits. Some people plant them for forestry purposes, windbreaks, whatever have you, um, and to control the spread of those same trees in an effort to avoid known negative trade-offs to society associated with afforestation. And I still see this online sometimes when I'm researching Eastern Red Cedar stuff, I find certain websites that say, hey, this is a great tree to plant, specifically for windbreaks, but you know, for other things. And other websites are like, this is causing havoc and grass, you know, and we know that. And so, yeah, there's just a mismatch in communication from different, you know, reputable organizations, basically. Right. They're yeah. Pol polar opposite messages coming out. Very much so. So explicitly incorporating panarchy into our research agenda has led to policy reform, and, the, and those changes are occurring at multiple scales. Legislative advisory councils have since formed, and most common, in the most commonly planted tree in the Great Plains, Easter Red Cedar, is now listed as one of the species most capable of regional and statewide consequences to ecosystem services. So things have changed, possibly as a result of these communication, science communication efforts. Roundtables have been created to bring scientists, private citizens, and representatives of government or agencies, NGOs, and industry together with the goal of informing legislators on the scientific consensus, which was made publicly available through you know, that East Red Cedar Literacy Project website like I talked about. Um, federal technical guidance for private landowners has recently been changed at the state level in response to our research and continues to be evaluated within the U.S. Department of, Natural Re US Department of Agricultural, Natural Resources, Conservation, Science. It's a mouthful. Technical programs in the USDA that promote conflicting guidance in which tree planting is recommended in one program and methods for control of that same tree are outlined in another are also under agency revision in Nebraska, which is fantastic. In Nebraska, policies yeah. were changed for one natural resource district, which was formerly a, pr a primary seller and distributor of Eastern Cedar. Most recently, a legislative resolution was passed in Nebraska state legislator into legislature in 2019 to increase awareness of Easter Red Cedar and the causes, consequences, and impacts of its continued spread throughout the grasslands. So science communication has led to paradigm, sh you know, individual paradigm and idea shifts and policy changes and has sort of set the wheels in motion. And they, they say that there's still work to do, laws and policies related to Easter Red Cedar are in a stage of reassessment and reorganization. So maybe if we think about law and policy as an adaptive cycle, maybe this particular sector of it is going through a reorganization phase. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and at a broader range of scales and has been achieved with pre previous scientific engagement. Although considerable progress has been made in addressing cross-scale challenges for governments in the Nebraska Sandhills and with Eastern Red Cedar, uh, there remain challenges that will require further engagement of research with law, policy, and management moving forward. For example, there is a need to link laws and policies to quantitative measures of system condition. This is, you know, we've talked in brief about like discontinuity analysis. There are new right. research methods to quantitatively assess panarchy 
um, that could, of course, then influence science communication and policy. Um, mm -hmm. But that's in the future. So this paper, in conclusion, highlighted one of the first real-world efforts to implement panarchy to address accelerated environmental change, and I would argue did that pretty much entirely through science communication, um, which is really cool. Yeah, demonstrates how this stuff can be applied. Yeah. Uh, science communication gets results. <laughs> <laughs> and why, yeah, why it's important to, as grad students, scientists, professors, whatever, learn and engage with science communication, which is, you know, what this project is that you and I are trying to do. Yeah, we're trying to teach people about resilience, but we're also trying to learn about how to communicate our science. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, cool. Connor, do you have a resilience in the news for us this week? Yes. Yeah, so I don't have a specific article per se, but that's mm -hmm. only because the thing I wanted to talk about is click a button and it's in the news. So okay. I wanted, <laughs> wanted to talk about the vaccine and vaccine distribution. Oh, great. Yeah. So as of right now, we're in the middle of um, distribution for COVID-2019 vac uh, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of wanted to bring forward as a amalgamation of a whole bunch of different news articles, I suppose, uh, discussion on the vaccine. What we see is vaccine uh, conversations going on at the federal level, the state mm -hmm. level, and the local level. And everyone's doing something a little bit different and has a little yes. bit different role. And I think this demonstrates a social aspect of panarchy pretty well, where we see the, the federal government focused on some of the, the large-scale logistics for getting vaccines produced and then distributed to the states. And the mm -hmm. states are the ones that are setting the policies and procedures for distribu distribution in their particular state. And even narrower at an even smaller scale, we see uh, local governments making decisions on who they want to prioritize for distribution, how they go about making distributions. Right. So not only is there variation between the states in the United States on what's being distributed, but even between, for example, Lincoln, Nebraska and Omaha, Nebraska, there's, there's mm -hmm. differences in how vaccine distribution is being rolled out and how um, different governments are prioritizing vaccine distribution. Right. And this, this does make quite a bit of sense when you think about it because these different social ecological systems have different characteristics in their systems, right? Um, the, the population demographics are different. Uh, the, the needs are different. The virus impact is different sure. in these different communities. And so, of course, you're going to see these, these variations in the system. And so what we don't really see, is, we don't really see a, a top-down or bottom-up approach going on so much as the interaction of different scales going on at either the same scale as we might see between like Lincoln, Nebraska and Omaha, Nebraska, mm -hmm. or between Nebraska and Iowa, for example. Right. But we also see these cross scale linkages at the high levels where states are interacting with the federal government, trying to get vaccines um, to, to the states. And we also see the federal government interacting with the states 
to to get the vaccines distributed. And we mm -hmm. see it even too between you know, the federal government and tribal governments, for example, getting that vaccine distribution. Um, and there's been conversations going about going on about how you get the vaccines to more remote areas, for example. So there's a lot of interesting things going on from a panarchy perspective on the the logistics of vaccine distribution. Yeah, particularly in a in a country as heterogeneous as the United States and with such uh, distinct levels of government. And I I yeah, I guess my hope is that once the vaccine rollout has completed people will use a panarchy framework to look back through how it occurred to look for improvements. Because there has been a really heterogeneous response in basically in how good certain states have done at this vaccine rollout. You know, maybe some, yeah, and what was the difference in the policies that led to that? Like my home state of Georgia has really struggled in getting vaccines out there um, and in having a well-organized distribution plan, whereas other states have done much better at that. So it'd be interesting to see was more top-down control needed? Was more federal government influence needed? You know, for those states that struggled, or was it something completely different? Was it the you know county level that really uh, needed a different response or a different plan? And so hopefully this is an example where panarchy might provide a framework for someone to go. You know, maybe someone's dissertation one day or something. Go, what kind of happened? Places that did good. Why did they do good? The places that did bad. Why did they do bad? and what was needed, I think would be really interesting. Absolutely. I think you're right on the money that from a from a panarchy perspective, from an adaptive governance perspective, mm -hmm. from an adaptive management perspective, that's going to be a really big growth field for the next yeah. probably decade or two is assessing yeah. things that went down. Yeah. yeah and, with the res and from a resilience standpoint, where perturbation and disturbance is constant, we will have another pandemic at some point. So hopefully, so hopefully no one goes, ah, we're done with that. We figured it out. Hopefully this is an opportunity to take resilience concepts, panarchy concepts, science, whatever, and go, here's how we better prepare next time. I think would be really cool. I think that's really important. I think it's really important too that I don't think there's too many people that think, oh, uh, a pandemic like this will never happen again. Yes. I think the greater dangerous assumption that's, oh, it's a once in a hundred year mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to worry about this for a long time. Right. This administration doesn't need to be concerned with that because, you know, that's a, a five administrations down the road problem. So right. we don't have to put the money or the time or whatever, because there are so many. And that makes sense because there are so many issues at any point in time in any country that demands time, money and concentration. If you believe right. it's something that's a hundred years down the road. Good Lord, how do you prioritize that at all? <laughs> You're absolutely right. You you only have so much attention you can take to so many issues at any one time. And yeah. so where does this fit into all of that? But I definitely think that there's we need to seize the moment when there's mm -hmm. a lot of concern and attention on the issue to set up those structures. So that absolutely. When the next the next big one does come, we can be better prepared. <laughs> I feel like we're so, this has been so difficult, obviously. And then we're like, oh my God, the next one. As soon as we said that, both of us were like, oh no, <laughs> a next one. <laughs> oh, not ready. Well, speaking of the next big one, I think you have something on oh, a Lord. related topic. Hmm. Uh, I don't know about related to, I have a, this is just, I don't know how I feel about this news article. It's, it's, <laughs> it's about space and like, human space exploration, which I don't really know how I feel about it as a topic. It's not a topic that I've ever really engaged with that much. I think I'm one of those people that has a view of like, we have problems down here, maybe we should focus on them first, which is a, which is an, a short sighted, narrow opinion. Space is important. Space exploration is important. But I've never thought about that much. 
But this article is called Scientists Want to Build a Doomsday Vault on the Moon. It's a CNN article. It's by Amy Woodyatt. Um, basically, it says engineers want to build an underground lunar ark like Noah's Ark filled with millions of seeds, spores, sperm and egg samples from Earth species hidden in a network of tubes on the moon to provide a genetic backup of the, for the planet in the event of a doomsday scenario. So another pan pandemic comes wipes most of us out, a few flee to the moon. There is a genetic reservoir uh, ready for us to sort of repopulate. Lions, tigers, humans. Bears. Ber yeah, bears, <laughs> birds, whatever. Oh my. Oh my. Um, and so this is an example, maybe a far-fetched, maybe, maybe silly, maybe not, depending on your view of these kind of things. Example of building and resilience at the sort of humanity scale at the sort of earth scale. If something goes wrong, if a perturbation too big for us to cope with happens to earth, we have a backup that would enable us to reorganize and regroup. At least that would be the ideal scenario. So it says scientists from the University of Arizona have proposed an ARC, dubbed a modern global insurance policy for 6.7 million species from earth, cryogen, cryogen, Oh, good Lord. Cryogenetically preserved and hidden inside a series of caves and tunnels under the moon's surface. They said the vault could protect the genetic materials in the event of a total annihilation of Earth, which would be triggered by a major drop in biodiversity. But any move to build such a bunker is a long ways off. So this is sort of thinking for the future. But right. we've just been talking about how important it is to think for the future. So maybe, maybe I'm just a terrible skeptic. This is where resilience really comes into this article as well. It says, Earth is naturally a volatile environment, uh, which re researcher Jenkin Thunga, who's a professor of aerospace and mechanical engineering at the University of Arizona, uh, said in a statement about this idea. So as humans, we had a close call about 75,000 years ago with the Toba supervolcanic eruption, which caused a 1,000 year cooling period. And according to some researchers, they think that aligns with an estimated drop in human diversity at that time. Because human mm. civilization has such a large footprint, if it were to collapse, there would be negative cascading effects on the rest of the planet. Sure. So similar doomsday vaults already exist on Earth. There's the Global Seed Vault, uh, which right. is home to just under 1 million seed samples. It's located on a remote island of Svalbard in an archipelago between Norway and the North Pole, so way up there where it's cold. Yeah, and so in a paper presented earlier this month, the team from the University of Arizona think that this concept could preserve life from Earth in the event of the destruction of the planet, which is... I don't know if we could actually get to the moon in the result of destruction, but backups are good. Backups are good. Oh, I think it's a really interesting concept. <laughs> I, I agree that um, the idea sort of presumes that future humans will be able to get back to the moon to extract all that stuff. But yeah. I, um, <laughs> I also think, you know, what are we defining as destruction of the planet? Because... It would be good for like an asteroid or, you know, nuclear or global warming or something like mm -hmm. that. If a Death Star were to come and like physically blow up the planet, well, then the, well, then the moon's well, orbit's going to go shooting off to the sun or Jupiter or yeah, then outside the solar system. <laughs> yeah, but it is, this, I mean, this is just cool from like a space nerd perspective. I so it's, it's the project is dependent on advancements in cryorobotics technology. To be cryopreserved, the seeds have to be cooled to minus 292 Fahrenheit, while stem cells must be stored at minus 320 Fahrenheit. Um, but the team says that at such temperatures, metal parts of the base could freeze. You know, it, there's all mm. sorts of technical, technical issues. 
They say that scientists still don't know how a lack of gravity could affect preserved seeds or how to communicate with an earth base, like how to talk back and forth with this vault. Um, but with, it's neat how they sort of came up with this idea in terms of experts uncovered a network of some 200 lava tubes beneath the surface of the moon in 2013, which had formed when streams of lava melted through soft rock to form underground tunnels billions of years ago. Scientists think that these tubes that are like 328 feet, 100 meters in diameter, could provide the perfect shelter for precious cargo, like we said. But um, yeah, so using already existing moon structures and hopefully we can yeah. get our cryo technology up, you know, developed. And uh, But I, yeah, maybe this sounds very far-fetched to me just because it's in space, but something like the Global Seed Vault does seem like a really wonderful resilience concept where it's like, we are affecting global biodiversity disturbances are becoming larger and more common, it's good to have some extra seeds of plants that might go extinct uh, stored away in a safe spot. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's definitely a great concept. The The weakness to something like the Svalbard seed vault is that it's an archipelago in the north in the Arctic Circle on an island. So as sea levels rise and the Arctic warms yeah. and per- <laughs> permafrost melts, the seed vault might be underwater. Yeah, how do you build a how do you build a resilient backup in a so, in an ever changing world? Yeah, and I think that's where the the moon vault comes in, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not a changing planet. Yeah, we're, so yeah. Not yeah. not so many dynamic processes anyway. Oh, very so. few, in fact, probably. So uh, yeah, that's all. I thought that was kind of fun. I spent so much time looking for an article, and I couldn't find anything that really hit all the spots without going you know I've stuff about fire and it's like i talk about fire literally every week and i was trying to find something that was a, a little bit lighthearted. not that destruction of the earth was lighthearted, but space travel is interesting yeah <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely yeah. fun thanks all for listening yeah this uh brings us to the end of the podcast so yes, thanks everybody for sticking with us and had some fun topics today yeah, tune in next week, and we will also soon have an interview with Dr. Dan Newton, um, Newton from University of Nebraska-Lincoln, who is a professor here up on the podcast. Sounds great. Bye. Thanks, all.